Well, welcome, welcome everyone to our, our penultimate session here of the Crosscut Festival. Uh, it's great to have you all here. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Brady Walkinshaw, and I am the CEO of Gris.org, the national environmental publication. And I'm thrilled to be here emceeing the politics, the politics panels throughout the day. So the title of this panel, just to make sure you're in the right place, is Legal Weed, colon, Who Profits and Who Loses? So that's what the discussion is going to be, and I'm going to take a second here to introduce uh, the terrific group of panelists and then hand it over to Bruce, our moderator. So first off, we have my friend to the right here, Jody Hall, um, and Jody is a Seattle, Seattleite. Uh, she founded Cupcake Royale, which many of you from Seattle will know, uh, and then she set sail into the cannabis business when she created The Good Ship, which some of you may also know, and it's become the gold standard amongst, gold standard amongst cannabis, cannabis edibles companies. Uh, and so she's based here in Seattle. Uh, to her left, we have Jesse Horton, and Jesse joins us from Portland, and he's the owner of Panacea Valley Gardens, which is a cultivation center and boutique edibles line in Portland, Oregon. He's also the co-founder of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, a nonprofit focused on increasing diversity in the cannabis industry. Uh, to his left, we have Amber Center, uh, who co-found is the co-founder and CEO of a leisure life and lifestyle-infused edibles company called Leisure Life. Uh, she also co-founded Supernova Women, an organization dedicated to empowering people of color to become self-sufficient cannabis industry shareholders and stakeholders. So that is Amber. And then to her left, we have our moderator for the discussion. We have Bruce Barcott, and he is the deputy editor of the site Leafly.com. Uh, he's also the author of the book Weed the People, the Future of Marijuana Legalization in America. And he also wrote and authored a Time Magazine special issue titled Marijuana Goes Main Street. Uh, you can find his features in the New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, Rolling Stone, and more. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have them with us. Let's give them all a round of applause. And I would also like to, before handing it off, just want to thank the sponsors for this, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and then the sponsor of our politics track throughout the day, which is Uber. Uh, so without further ado, over to Bruce. Thank you, Brady. Um, thank you all for being here today. It's fantastic. I loved seeing uh, this, this conference sold out and, and uh, especially people showing up in the, in the horrible weather. Thank you for coming out. Um, I first encountered this issue back in November of 2012 when we here in Washington State were voting on legalization. And uh, I was actually on the fence on the matter. Um, cannabis was not my thing. I really hadn't uh, uh, encountered it since, since late college. And uh, I was wavering toward voting no uh, when a friend of mine uh, sort of buttonholed me and, and said, listen, I don't care how you think about pot. Nobody really cares how you think about pot. She said, this is a social justice issue. This is a uh, travesty, talking about the war on drugs, that has kept generations of people of color in jail, in prison. She said, you don't have to worry about it because you're a middle-aged white guy. And I went away and thought about it and did a little research and uh, realized she had a point. So I held my nose and voted yes, and uh, very glad I did. It uh, has turned out far, far better than I anticipated at the time. But 
the other thing I realized, and I've been covering this issue now since, since 2012 as a writer and now an editor, is that that legalization vote is only the start, it's only the beginning of a lot of changes that need to occur. Um, because one of the things we've seen happen with this emerging legal cannabis industry is that uh, a number of people who were most harmed by the war on drugs are shut out for a number of reasons. Um, everything from past convictions, uh, often based on um, uh, imbalanced racial arrests, uh, and everything that from that to uh, access to capital has shut out a lot of people who should be otherwise um, have the opportunity to come into this industry. Um, one statistic I want to throw out at the beginning here, and then I'll, I'll uh, toss it over to Jesse Horton. Uh, Amanda Chicago Lewis, uh, a good writer on this subject, did a piece for BuzzFeed uh, last year looking at people of color in the cannabis industry and did a little research and came up with the fairly shocking number of 1% uh, as the number of people of color who were owners, uh, entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Um, and Jesse Horton here is one of those one percenters. And I want to toss it over to you, Jesse. And I wonder if you could talk with us a little bit about how we got to that situation uh, and what some of those barriers are. Of course, thank you very much, Bruce. Um, and thank you everyone here for, uh, for joining in on what I think is a really important conversation for a number of reasons. Uh, when we look at essentially the barriers, right? Why are there not enough people of color? Um, why are people getting shut out? What are the actual reasons? I think it's easy to see as we look in the industry that there aren't a lot of people that look like myself or like Amber, um, but I think the reasons are, are very dynamic and complex. And the way that we look at them first is policy. Uh, the barriers to entry are extremely, extremely high when we look at overregulation. Uh, places like Florida, for example, they had a rule that in order to apply, not even to, you had to spend $100,000 and have millions of dollars in the bank, in order to get that license, but in order also to apply, they put in a rule that said you had to have a 30-year consecutive nursery operating in the state of Florida for you to even get in line to apply. Now, you can imagine that the people that decided 30 years was the rule, right, they were sitting around the table as that happened. Um, and as a result, there were no uh, black or minority-owned nurseries that qualified. They decided to let the Black, uh, black Farmers Association apply for a license However, there was another stipulation. They said that um, the Black Farmers Association can have a license. However, they have to wait until the following licensing period. So they were allowed to let all the other cultivators come in and establish their position. And then that one license that they afforded to the black farmers was then able to come into play. Um, that's happening everywhere, hundreds of thousands of dollars and a number of different stipulations and barriers that also keep people who have previous felonies or previous arrests for cannabis out of the market, not even sometimes even allowing them to get a job in the industry. Um, the second piece is education. And I think that plays out in a couple of ways, right? Because of some of these arrests, first there's a taboo. People don't want to touch it. Uh, my father went to prison for seven years for cannabis distribution. Um, I went to jail a couple of times uh, whenever I was in school and uh, high school as well as college. Uh, for cannabis. As a result, when I said I wanted to get into the cannabis industry, they fought tooth and nail to keep me away from cannabis because of the idea that it was going to ruin my life. So you have families all around the country who feel this way and it stops them from getting in line because we know it's a very fast industry. You have to be available whenever it opens up. 
Um, the second piece of education is that a lot of people who knew how to cultivate, who knew a lot about cannabis, ended up with those arrests, right? Um, some places as much as 19 to 1 was the arrest rate of people of color uh, to white people, even though the usage rate was nearly exactly the same. So that's another reason that a lot of people are barred from even getting in. The last piece is, of course, important for everyone in the cannabis industry, um, the inability to get capital, right? The inability to go and get traditional capital forces you to go out and focus on those friends and family and people that know you and are close to you. And unfortunately, uh, people of color, especially African-Americans at this point, do not have the access to capital, have not built up that amount of money in order to invest. And sometimes really what it takes is at least $100,000, not even including uh, the license and things of that nature. So I think those three things, policy, education, and connection to resources and capital are the three reasons um, why, why we're in the situation. Thank you. Um, Amber, I want to get to, uh, I want to grab that point of, about capital a little later and talk with you about that. But first, um, you operate in the city of Oakland, which is one of the few places that's actually addressed this issue head on. And I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit about what that city uh, has done or has tried to do uh, and how it's working out so far. Yeah, so uh, I live in Oakland and uh, Oakland has established an equity permit program. Uh, which basically dedicates um, licenses to certain police beats um, designated in the city that have been uh, disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. So they looked at some data over the past 10 years or so and uh, said, okay, this neighborhood here has been, has had higher arrest rates than this neighborhood over here. And uh, they came up with, I believe it was eight neighborhoods uh, that were disproportionately affected. And so the people that live in these um, areas are eligible for this program. Now there is uh, a few stipulations that come with it. You'd had to have lived in this, these areas for 10 years out of the past 20 years. Uh, but you can also qualify for the program if you have had a, a, a cannabis arrest in the state of California. And so um, the program has just been rolled out um, uh, the city actually issued its first four uh, equity licenses um, on Wednesday, and uh, they did it through a lottery, and my group actually won one, which was pretty exciting. <laughs> so one of what we did, my group, uh, we partnered with one of these people from this police beats who had no resources, who, had, who has basically nothing. And we partnered with him 50-50 on a dispensary, and now he's gonna be a dispensary owner, which is pretty awesome. That's interesting, so that's, so you're the, the capital in a sense that he did not have. Yeah, which is funny because I don't come from money either. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how do you work uh, to find that capital? I mean, now that you've got that license, um, you're gonna have to put in quite a bit of investment uh, to find a storefront to lease and build out the infrastructure of that store. Um, what, what, what sort of challenges now are you facing on that side? So, um, you know, Jesse made quite a few very good points about things, uh, barriers of entry into the industry. And one thing that I have going for me is education. Um, I have a background in marketing. Uh, I was the COO of a dispensary for a year and a half in Oakland, so I, I've got some experience. I was able to find a business partner that was an MBA, and he's also a POC, and um, he's basically the money piece 
You know, he's he's got access to all kinds of capital. He went to Dartmouth, so he's he's got all kinds of just lots of access. So he and I partnered together, and and we partner with with the equity person and made it happen. But this these are the kinds of alliances that have to happen in order to uh, really make these things possible and successful. You know, people. People of color have to join forces and work together and help bring people up. And it seems like one of the ways that's happening is through groups like Supernova Women and through groups like the Minority Cannabis Business Association where you're connecting people, um, one person to another. You have this skill, you have that skill, you have access to capital over here, you should meet that person. Um, is, that, is, that, uh, is that happening, is that prospering? I mean, are, are you seeing, I know, Jesse, I, I've, followed MCBA for, for a couple of years now, and I know you guys do quite a bit of, of that sort of thing. How, how does that, what does it actually look like? I mean, do you have events where people come and, and meet each other, or what? To... Yeah, actually, um, uh, my organization and MCBA threw a party together in Oakland. Um, events are huge because um, networking is key. That's one of the things, one of the three things that uh, Supernova does uh, we, uh, we, special, we really focus on networking, advocacy, and education, because uh, those are some of the big barriers uh, of entry really into the industry. Yeah. Jody, I want to bring in you into the conversation. You're a business owner. You started up two very successful businesses here in Seattle, um, Cupcake Royale and The Good Ship. And I wonder if you could talk us through a, a few of the differences that you encountered from, in terms of um, uh, starting up Cupcake Royale versus The Good Ship, because The Good Ship is in the cannabis space. Um, I'll throw that out as a, as a first question, and my, and my follow-up question is, I know you have a very diverse workforce, and what are some of the things that you do to find those people to add that value to your company? Um, yeah, so I, I keep saying this reference. Uh, being an entrepreneur and a lot of us, I mean, how many people have started their own company and know what it's like to put all your money on the line and hope this business plan comes to life? It's hard, it's, but it's exciting. You want to do this idea and change the world. And, and, and my experience with Good Ship versus Cupcake Royale is this is your business. This is your business on drugs. It is literally exponentially harder and and for all the reasons we're we're discussing up here to raise capital I mean another point Jesse is that you have to raise capital within your state at least in Washington everybody had to go through a really rigorous background check where I mean it was it was intense uh, just no prior anything on your record uh, to to come in and, and, and participate if you wanted to be a part of the investment um, so, so yeah, I, I, it is very similar. I mean, we're baking cookies and we're making chocolate and confection in Good Ship and we make cupcakes at Cupcake Royale. We probably touched the product about seven or eight times in the marijuana side with all the regulations and steps and there's been five changes in the, in the regulation in Washington State which have had significant impact every single time. You have to put this label on that this is the new warning language. This uh, is the new packaging protocol. And, and if you don't have the capital to uh, buy another $50,000 worth of packaging to get the price down to compete, uh, you then are doing a lot of extra labor to kind of pull it together, and it's tricky. Um, what was the second part? Second question was uh, the workforce that you've, you've um, established. Yeah, the, absolutely. The I mean, 
It's funny because when I started Good Ship, I actually sat down with Allison Holcomb, who is the ACLU attorney who wrote I-502 for civil liberties and justice uh, reasons, which I really believe in. And I, as I thought about that, knowing what I did at Cupcake, uh, just wanting to be a pioneer and chart a new path to inspire a profound connection and to make a good impact on the world is part of my thread. And then, yeah, make money below that. And so thinking about the cannabis space, I talked a lot about the true pioneers of this industry are people of color that were disproportionately targeted, arrested, uh, people with certain socioeconomic status that disproportionately targeted, arrested, with felonies for minor possession, and and the true pioneers, how do we do, how do we create a business and not recognize that? And so that is really important to me. I, I, I'm really proud of, uh, I, I'm, so I was chatting with Allison about how we can do that, and yet I'm not, am I the person to do that? But I do want to do that. And, uh, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a lesbian, so maybe I'm lesser than, but I am. My skin is white, so I have infinite more, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an awkward, interesting place to be. But I think it's really important. And what I'd like to see, and even at Cupcake Royale, what can we do to bring in people whose lives are ruined uh, through the war on drugs? If you take one parent out of that mix and there's kids or whatever, what path do those guys go down when you lose that person to this awful system? So if we can bring people back and encourage others to hire people with minor or minor possession felony of, with, with dr or drug-related, especially in the cannabis side, I think it's important to, to give that opportunity to all of us. That American dream is not just for a certain color of skin. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I want to touch on one, um, or just bring out one detail, Jesse, when you were talking about the, the policies that are in place that set up barriers to, to entry. Uh, this is in Washington State, and um, this was... Uh, an article that Hannah Brooks Olson wrote for us at Leafly a few months ago on what Washington to do can do to now improve our law here. And she just talks about how the Washington um, Liquor and Cannabis Board uh, uses a point system to determine whether or not a licensed applicant's prior arrests or convictions disqualify them from the process. And she says a misdemeanor conviction is four points, a gross misdemeanor is five, a felony conviction is 12 points, anyone who scores more than eight points is out. And she says that, look, just a few years ago, back in 2013, possession of 40 grams of cannabis or more was an automatic felony. Um, so that, and, and she points out that even though Seattle's population is 8% black, two-thirds of those arrested for delivery of a serious drug back in 2005 or so were black. Um, so those are some of the barriers. It's astronomical. Though. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Those are some of the barriers that are sort of built into, they're the, the, the um, granular details that are built into these policies. And one of the things I know that you guys did uh, at uh, MCBA was you tried, you took a proactive stance, and I think it was last year, you got together and came up with a piece of model legislation that basically other states can use to, you said, look, the, we know what the problems are, here are some ways, here are some actual laws um, that can overcome or start to overcome those problems. Can you talk a little bit about that piece of model legislation? And I actually brought copies uh, for anyone who wants 
to see it after the panel. Um, I'll, I'll pass them out. But talk us through why you did that and um, how, uh, whether the message has been received in state legislatures. Yeah, sure. So um, from the Minority Cannabis Business Association standpoint, when we started the organization, there weren't any other organizations like it at the time. So we really quickly had to understand what did we want to be. Um, and of course, we, within the policy education and connection, we quickly identified that policy was the biggest barrier, but we also knew that we didn't want to be the policy organization, right? We wanted to focus on business development and connections and networking. So what we did is um, we, we knew, of course, that that was an important thing. We had to make a stance. Um, but a lot of times what you see out there is people who are complaining about a problem, they're pointing out a problem, but they're not necessarily taking the time to show people how to do it. And I think that's what a lot of the issues were as policies were, were being passed. No one really had a go-by or no one really had a, a real understanding of what the issues were and how to address it. So what we did is we, we said we wanted to do that um, and we grabbed all the people who knew more about policy than we did. So we reached out to organizations like uh, the ACLU, we reached out to NAACP, uh, people like the National Cannabis Industry Association, Marijuana Policy Project, Drug Policy um, uh, Alliance, and brought them all in a room together and said, hey, these are the most important pieces of regulations, of policy, state legalization. What do we feel, what is the best way from all these people from all across the country who have been working on this in their individual areas, what is the best way to approach it? What has worked, what hasn't worked? So we went through a whole uh, three-day process of really outlining those things, things like tax appropriation. Where should the taxes go? Um, what should those taxes be? so that um, it's, it's not a hindrance to small business because that's one of the biggest things. A lot of things that we focus on from MCBA standpoint is not really things that are only focused on people of color having businesses, but I think the overarching issue that affects them is uh, these barriers to entry, these things that hurt small businesses like taxation, um, things of that nature, over-regulation. So that was a big piece of what we looked at. Um, we looked at also things like license limits, uh, because no matter what, if you say we're only gonna have 10 licenses in a city or in a, in a state, whatever it may be, even if you do have diversity or equity requirements there, it's usually going to be the people with the most political capital, the people with the most financial capital who are in line and have the ability to attain those licenses. It's just the way the world works in capitalism. So we wanted to look at license limits. We wanted to look at um, things like, uh, you know, who's actually overseeing the taxes and where does it go once we appropriate those taxes. And some of that was built on what happened in Portland, Oregon, which was the first city in the country that voted to allocate some of its cannabis tax to communities that have been targeted by the war on drugs. So some of these things were actually happening. We pulled those together into this model piece of legislation. Of course it wasn't perfect and it still isn't, but we revisit that each year. And this is our second year that we uh, revisited it actually in Atlanta right after they passed the ordinance to decriminalize. In Atlanta, 94% of the arrests uh, were black people. Um, in, in the city in that past year, 94%. There's a lot of black people in Atlanta, but not that much, uh, trust me. So, um, you know, we looked at that and we really wanted to have something as a basis for what we stood for and what we believed and what we believe was the biggest issue affecting not just people of color, but small business and the industry as a whole from growing and becoming more innovative. Thank you, thank you. And as I say, I'll, I'll um, leave some, um, uh, some documents here at the edge of the 
stage at uh, the end of the session today, if anybody wants to take a look at those. Um, one of the things that you touched on earlier, Jesse, was uh, uh, talking about policy and um, we've seen in a number of states, Florida being the most notorious example, um, of where this sort of policy is shaped in the state capitol. I mean, that 30-year that, that, uh, nursery bill in Tallahassee was, was mind-boggling. I mean, <laughs> who, yeah. Uh, but, but we've also seen it in more progressive states like Massachusetts, where Massachusetts passed a legalization law um, back in November of 2016, and then the state legislature got a hold of it. Um, and there were some pretty progressive parts of that legislation um, in Massachusetts. I know at least one member of the M MCBA was, Shalene Title was, was in on writing the law. And the state legislature got in there, they were kind of fine tuning it, and they kind of started to fine tune out a lot of those equity clauses. And I think, if I recall right, a, sort of an ad hoc, a coalition of folks had to, had to run to Boston to save those measures at the last minute, and they did but it really took a, a, quite an effort to do that. Um, and, and Amber and Jody, I want to throw this back at, at, at you two. Uh, you have enough challenges running a business, uh, starting a business, running a business, all this sort of stuff. How do you keep half of your eye on Olympia or Sacramento to make sure that your business isn't sort of scratched out in some weird piece of legislation? How, how, how do you do that? Yeah, you know, that's a big part of what, um, of really what we do uh, as far as the advocacy piece of Supernova, you know. Uh, when you are a business owner in the cannabis space, you really also have to be an activist. Like, the, if you care about your business, and um, most of these businesses are small businesses, you also have to be an activist because you're gonna have to go to city council, you're gonna have to go talk to the legislators because they are gonna come up with some really crazy, far-fetched laws, you know? They're, they're drafting all kinds of things and they don't know because they're not operating like and seeing what's happening and how these things are very impractical that they're coming up with. So, uh, you've, you know, I've, you have to have a lobbyist, you know, and that's, that's where you, you've got to start spending some money, you know? You've got to have people on your side going there and constantly in the legislators' ears, uh, constantly at city council, staying on top of, of all these things, watching the meetings at home live stream, you know? It's, it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a lot of... Um, a lot of juggling, especially if you are running a business, but it's just, it's really, it's, it's part of what, what comes with it. This is a, this is a cannabis industry. Yeah. Jody, I know, uh, I think I know, uh, you have spo uh, spoken with at least um, one member of our congressional delegation here in Washington, maybe it was a staff member, I'm not sure, about, um, were you in on uh, conversations about banking, or, or people wanted to know what the deal was with banking, right? Yeah. Um, how, how do you approach those conversations with either um, the policymaker themselves or the staff member? Um, what level of knowledge do they have about this industry or the challenges they face, and how do you get your point across in the limited amount of time that you might have I, there? I agree with, I mean, all of us probably obviously spend a lot of time educating our legislature uh, because especially being the early, an early state that came out for legalization and 
Uh, we have some great people in our state, uh, and luckily I have met all these guys because we, as a business owner, no matter what, you, you have to be involved. City council uh, with $15 wage, let's make sure we're doing that right and doing it uh, in a way that will allow the good, good actors in business to continue to thrive and make sure we're taking care of our people. Same with uh, healthcare reform, I got really involved with that through Cupcake and went all the way to testify in a Republican congressional hearing on, in D.C. right before SCOTUS. So I feel like I've had the, the, where they upheld Obamacare. And I feel like I've already met a lot of these folks and I'm invited to the table quite a bit. I just met with uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal last week about with the head of Seattle Police, with the head of the CEO of the bank, Salal Credit Union in Washington, with uh, 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 some friends that have a grow, uh, and, and me and Allison Holcomb, the ACLU, just so she could kind of bring back to DC. It's, it's important to be engaged, I guess, and uh, luckily I've had those relationships and already know our governor, our mayor, our city council, just because of the work we've done at Cupcake. And, and I think if you raise your hand to get out there, you're invited to the table and it's important. It's, it's half of what we do. We have to keep our eye on, on that and educate. Our goal is to educate and help them understand how, you know, it was awesome having the head of police in Seattle talk about the effective legalization in Washington State and in the city of Seattle. And it is a zero concern for him it is not adding to arrests. It's not something that is adding to his payroll. It's actually alleviating a lot of things. The, the problems that he's having with regarding you know, drugs are illicit drugs coming in outside of marijuana, outside of uh, other kind of more harmful drugs and, and stings they have to do around that. So he's relieved about that. So that's great. Um, but yeah, being involved is half the job, it's really important. We all are leaders and pioneers and we need to, to show the way. Yeah, yeah, no, it's funny, I see that even on my own, I mean, I live on Bainbridge Island and I, I see it um, in my own small community there, talking, trying to, you know, uh, people will approach me in the, the produce section of the grocery store and ask, because they know I'm the marijuana guy, right? Um, and uh, and I, I see, I know what you're saying, you're, you try to stop there and take a moment and Present what you know in you know the the most calm and 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 um, to that person normal manner because their preconceptions are so enormous um, and they've been told these things over 10, 20, 30 years. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about breaking down those uh, those barriers, those taboos, those stigmas um, in terms of uh, as you said, Jesse. You know, talking with your own parents. Uh, about getting into this business and running it as, as, a, as a legitimate thing and not in their mind something that's gonna, gonna bring harm to you. Um, both on a personal level and maybe also in terms of, of uh, recruiting people, recruiting top employees. I mean, I work for a company where um, it, it is happening less and less, but when I started at Leafly a couple of years ago, it was not easy to find established writers who were willing to write about cannabis. It was. Uh, something nobody wanted to be pigeonholed as the, the, the stoner writer, right? And um, uh, I had a few people who were, who were bold enough to take that leap with me and realize, okay, it's just another subject, we're writing about it, it's a you know, $1.5 billion business here in Washington State. How, has, um, how do you have those conversations, either personally or you know, if you see somebody in another 
industry, another business, who is like, man, that's a top uh, uh, accountant or HR person or computer developer. I'd like to talk with them about maybe you know joining. How do you start those conversations? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. I, I think. Of course, the, the most important thing that I say is that this is the fastest growing industry in what is the largest economy in the world. You know, So anyone who cares about the direction of the country, who cares about uh, economic policy, all these different things have to understand, has to understand that this is a real business, this is a real issue. And then when you pull in all the social justice aspects, the historical arrests, you really see what is a, a very important time in our country in addressing some of the most important topics, right, um, through cannabis, like mass incarceration, like uh, social justice reform, like um, uh, the opioid uh, epidemic, right, and how cannabis can help there. But I think one of the most important things that I explain to people first is uh, the endocannabinoid system, right? You're, a lot of people are aware of that. That is the easiest thing once you pinpoint and help people to understand that, can I get a raise of hands of who has heard of the endocannabinoid system? That's perfect. Um, it, it's, it's exactly, it's really all you need to know as it relates to cannabis for the most part. It is the largest system of receptors in your entire body, right, that spans every other system, your nervous system, your cardiovascular system, all helping to bring your body to what they call a form of homeostasis, right, a balance. Uh, the endocannabinoid system affects things like appetite, like mood. Um, all these different things that we understand that cannabis has affected is really being controlled by what is a real functioning system um, in your body. And then understanding that uh, and really understanding how cannabinoids from cannabis affect and help to balance out that endocannabinoid system is just mind-blowing uh, to people who really want to understand information. And when you look at this specific issue, people of color in the endocannabinoid system. If you look at people of color, can I get another raise of hands of who's heard of the minority health disparity gap? There's more people, right? The minority health disparity gap is something that's studied by the Centers for Disease Control that essentially says that people of color are not as healthy as the majority. When you look at things like access to affordable health care, um, access to uh, clean and, and, and efficient housing, um, a, lot, a lot of these different things, health education, uh, these communities don't have as what formed the minority health disparity gap, which made up of diseases like cancer, um, diabetes, uh, heart disease. The top five diseases that make up this minority health disparity gap are all can be, can be treated or even sometimes reversed by the proper use of cannabinoids and cannabis. Um, so that is something I think that is also mind-blowing is that this is a tool that will not really hurt our community if it's treated the right way from a criminal justice standpoint, um, but it will help our community and help us to become more healthy by just applying it in ways that um, are, are digestible in a, in, a, in a figurative sense to people who have viewed cannabis as a harm in our community. So I think those three things are what I really focus on uh, when I talk to people and I try to help them to really understand the benefit of this industry and how their skills can be utilized to really make a really big impact. Great, thank you. I wanna, I wanna uh, we have about uh, 10 more minutes or so and I wanna um, uh, toss out a, an opportunity to talk a little a bit about uh, some of the uh, 
growth and progress you've seen. Um, I, Amber, I'm, I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about um, why you chose to come over? You came over from a very well-established marketing career with Fortune 500 companies, saw some opportunity in this space. Um, talk, walk us through a little bit of uh, the, the excitement or satisfaction that you have or, or, or have received from, from growing some of these companies in the, in the cannabis area. Oh, sure. So, uh, <clears throat> let's see, I moved, I moved to California from Chicago four years ago, um, shortly after I was diagnosed with lupus. And um, the move was so that I could have access to medical cannabis and um, so that I could be in a more temperate climate. Um, the Bay stays about 65 degrees year-round, so that was, that was pretty perfect. And... Um, uh, yeah, you know, um, I really wanted to, I really wanted to change. Um, I've been f a fan of Canvas, you know, my whole life. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, I knew that I, I needed access to medical cannabis and I needed to be on a regimented, you know, type of schedule. So I figured the best way to do that would be to merge both of my worlds with, um, uh, being um, cannabis and marketing. So I moved to California and uh, I was a marketing director for an edibles company. And um, <clears throat> then through that process and then uh, I, I um, kind of moved up and went to be a creative director for a, uh, uh, a cannabis um, uh, consulting company. Uh, that helped uh, groups obtain licenses throughout the country. And I learned quite a bit about licensing there and writing uh, winning applications and how that works. And uh, then from there, <clears throat> I left there and, uh, became, and started to, uh, I took over operations of a dispensary and uh, learned a whole lot about uh, uh, running a licensed dispensary in a Oakland, which is, you know, one of the biggest cannabis markets in the world. And um, it, it's been really rewarding, you know. Um, it's interesting um, changing, uh, you know, I, I talk to all kinds of people every day, uh, people that use cannabis every day, recreational users, medical users. And um, it's been really rewarding, you know, um, help, helping all these brands grow, watching all these brands grow. Uh, some of them exponentially, especially like on the dispensary side, and um, that's great. It's one of the things that you're. I'm, I'm hearing you say is, um, I know uh, Jesse mentioned the amazing growth of this industry, um, just in terms of dollar value. But you're talking about something that actually I, I, I see as well in in, um, in my company and other companies been, and that's the opportunity for personal growth. I mean, going you know from from marketing side to be a consultant to being running the operations to now owning your you know your own license and 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 this sort of thing in a fairly quick. Yeah. Amount of time, short like amount of time. Four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, it's been a wild ride for sure, but it's been an awesome one. And um, you know, I, I could have never done this in any other industry. You know, if I, I sit back and think, you know, oh, what if I was in print before? You know, what what that would have been like? I think uh, it was very stagnant in all these other industries. But this is the industry is growing so fast. It's pretty easy to to, to get in there and really just right. push forward. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jody, uh, I want to 
I wonder if you could talk with us a little bit about the ways in which you found you and your company are able to um, to encourage those connections. Um, I know one of the famously one of the things that your company has done is is uh, established. Uh, the higher education night once every uh, once a month uh, up on Capitol Hill, where you have a guest speaker come in and you invite people and uh, to gather and and uh, sort of start their own conversation about that topic and other topics. Um, talk with talk with us a little bit about um, why you established that night, what it does for you, what it does for your company, and and the community. Yeah, I mean, we, we created this event called the Good Ship Academy of Higher Education, um, slightly pun intended, but it was, it was kind of uh, trying to help. We have a really interesting seat at the table during this end of prohibition and renaissance uh, in this incredibly giant business opportunity to shape the, to help reduce the stigma and help shape a more positive future around cannabis. And, you know, we talked about being involved in legislative things. I think the other thing we have to do in this industry is be out and talk about cannabis. It's legal. Alcohol and cigarettes are legal and they're prolific everywhere. Advertising, you see them at stadiums, you see them sponsoring things, and yet they kill so many people. One of the biggest, one of our biggest health expenses is directly related to alcohol and tobacco, yet somehow cannabis has a stigma, yet it does all this good stuff. So higher education was kind of an invitation to come out, come pre-boarded on the good ship, AKA Stone, because you can't enjoy cannabis in a, in a public setting with a liquor license, which you can do in California, which I'm learning, interesting. Um, so come pre-boarded on the good ship, and, and the idea is, that we connect under the lens of marijuana to our own selves and to what's around us, the music we're listening to, the food we're enjoying, and the discussion we're having. And, and we connect, I think we're incredibly present under that state, and I think we're starving, starving to be present. We're so distracted, our minds are racing, and cannabis allows us to be right where we are. And we think about back in the day, we're in the backyard or out with our friends and smoking pot and looking up at the heavens and wondering, are there aliens out there? Or uh, all these kind of big ideas. So the idea is heady topics under heady influence. And so we've had speakers from the chief astronomer at SETI talking about aliens, are they out there? We had uh, the founder of The Onion talk about fake news. We had a MacArthur Genius Fellow who uh, is a esteemed doctor at Fred Hutch talk about suspended animation and how we can stop time in the human body while time goes around us. So head of AI at Google talking about computers being creative. So the idea is, is coming out on, come to this event pre-boarded on the good ship, stoned, and listen to these ideas, engage in a conversation in a salon-like setting. It's kind of like Stone TED Talks, but more conversational, because we want people to, to one, do that, and how does that feel? It used to be that you'd come stoned and nobody knew, and then you'd be paranoid. Part of me thinks that paranoia is because nobody knew that you were stoned and that you were paranoid. Um, so it's kind of like leading, trying to have an opportunity to say, hey, we're doing this. I, yeah, I'm the cupcake lady, guess what? I love marijuana, it's so much better than alcohol. I feel more present, I'm a better mom. I'm a better partner, I'm a better friend. 
And, and leading that narrative, I think, is just as important as leading with Congress and all the other stuff we have to do. But it's fun. You guys should come. The next one's on February 14th. I've been to a few of them. They're great. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Um, we're, we're, we're out of time, but I want to uh, thank the three of you for coming um, and joining us today. And I, it's such a pleasure to have you up here. I see the work that, that each of you do every day behind the scenes, uh, covering it for Leafly, and uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to, to finally have a conversation with all of you together. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> On to your next session. <laughs>